Welcome to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. Welcome. The topic of our show today is the latest developments in crypto regulation in the US and the EU, the differences in regulation on both continents, and what the impact on crypto and the DeFi system. We have invited two amazing guests, um, but before I introduce the guests, I would say hello to Simon, my co-host today. Hi, Simon. Glad to be here. So, who are our amazing guests? We have talked to them in uh, earlier Untile Investments talks already. So, we have Jimmy Lenz here from Duke University. He's a director of the Master of Engineering in FinTech and Master of Engineering in Cybersecurity. Hi, Jimmy. Hello, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me back again. That's great. And today, you are not alone with Simon and me, but we have Patrick at our side. Patrick Hansen is the head of blockchain at Bitcom. Bitcom is the largest European tech lobbying organization. Hi, Patrick. Hi, everyone. Happy to discuss this topic with you. Okay, that's cool. Not easy for us moderators to coordinate two guys of your caliber, but we'll try to do our best. Uh, since we have introduced you and how you came to the blockchain space already earlier in the other Untitled Investment Talks, I think we can immediately dive into the topic. Before we do this, just a short note to our listeners. Anything we say here is subjective. These are personal opinions. This is by no means investment advice, legal advice, or any kind of advice. We had two super interesting talks with both of you already. With Jimmy on crypto derivatives, risk management, ETC, and with Patrick on Mika, the EU regulation on crypto assets. And regulatory stuff has been hot on Twitter, I would say, the last uh, two weeks, especially in the US. It was quite turbulent with some statements from Gary Gensler, the new share of the SEC, and these kind of drama, I would call it the... Yeah, the infrastructure bill discussion drama here. Let's start with the first question for you, Jimmy. Gary Gensler spoke at the Aspen Security Forum about digital assets. Some of this was, I, I would say, kind of, you could say, positive, but a lot could be interpreted rather critical, right? Especially if it comes to the question if tokens can be classified as securities. The good thing seems to be that he drew, seems to draw a fine line between Bitcoin and other digital assets. But I think it was not overall very satisfying for the crypto community. Can you give our listeners some more insights? Sure. I think this is a great question to start with because in the United States in particular, there is no regulatory regime around anything digital asset-wise. And so right now we're at this very, very strange place where we have a lot of regulatory bodies kind of vying for it and talking about it a little bit, but that's as far as they're going, is vying for it and talking about it. There, there's nothing else. And in the US, it's, it's kind of a strange thing also because we have so many regulators. So in most countries, you don't have the, the regulatory regimes that we have in the United States. And this, this always plays out this way. Any sort of new asset, this tends to play out in a kind of a strange way. But here in the U.S. that, you know, around securities in particular, we have the SEC, which everybody's pretty familiar with. 
But then we also have the CFTC, which people are less familiar with. Then we have FINRA. Then we have the exchanges. Then, oh, by the way, every state in the United States has its own securities regulator. Then you have the Department of Justice and places like that. And so there's there's a very, very large regulatory regime here. And, and there aren't a lot of defined lines. With respect to what Chairman Gensler came out with, I think the other day, was it seemed a little bit haphazard to me. In other words, he talked about a couple of specific things, but as we all know, digital assets is a huge space. You can't say, well, I want to talk about digital assets and only talk about Bitcoin, right? Because what about the stablecoin space? What about NFTs? What about, you know, everything else that's out there? And so it just just seemed to me uh, a little bit haphazard and kind of off the cuff for someone like Chairman Gensler to come out with with anything. When you start talking about digital assets and, and you don't define what those are, it's going to, I think, cause more problems than illicit solutions. As you said, people, I think, right now are just now more confused. And then you have the other kind of issue with this is this is the Securities and Exchange Commission coming out and making these kinds of pronouncements. Well, are you saying that all digital assets are securities? I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I have to agree with a lot of what you said. And it does feel like many people are right not just struggling to kind of position themselves as experts and as having an opinion on things. So one of the topics um, was around stablecoins, that stablecoins might also be securities depending on what they're backed with. What's your view on that? How can that impact whether stablecoins are securities? Yeah, I think the the idea of stablecoins as securities is an interesting one. But when we think about securities and what securities are, having a, a vested interest, in particular, when we think about equities or debt, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to put on, I'm going to take off my, my you know, crypto hat, my engineering hat, and I'll put on my economics hat for a minute. When we think about securities, we think about equity and debt, right? Well, stablecoins certainly aren't equity. You know, maybe you have something that is representative of an asset, but you don't really have equity in it in the same kind of the same way, unless you want to say that if I have a uh, euro in my pocket, I have equity in, in the EU. And then I, I might have a vested interest, but I don't think you have equity. And it's, and it's certainly not debt, right? It, it's, it's, it's simply representative of an asset. So that would go, in my mind, pretty far outside of what we normally think of a security as. Now we can certainly say, we're going to have a new securities category, a new, you know, a new type of security. But even when you look at stablecoins, because they're based on so many different things, where would you start drawing the line? I think that would be very, very difficult to, to do. And then you think about it, well, what about stablecoins that are central bank digital currencies? Are those stablecoins? You know, I mean, there's only one country that's rolled this out in a pretty big way in China. But I think China would probably have a problem with the SEC saying, we're going to regulate your uh, central bank digital currency or or make some kind of pronouncements around it, right? I mean, it probably doesn't stop them from trying. But yeah, that's definitely a pretty interesting and funny juxtaposition. Now, on one of these topics um, on Twitter, actually, Brian Quintens, the CFTC commissioner, tweeted in a response to basically an inquiry whether Ethereum will be a security or not, or is a security or not, that in his opinion, a futures contract on a security is both an SEC's and CFTC's jurisdiction. Now, a futures contract on a pure commodity is only in the CFTC's jurisdiction. And, well, 
out of that, he followed that there's currently no futures contract on ETH. It's only under the CFTC's purview, which makes it a non-security commodity. Of course, this also seems like an ex-post justification of how, it's, how it is right now. But as you mentioned, it's not, in the US, it's not a unified regulatory hierarchy of who's responsible for what, and it's not top to bottom, but there's many different people and organizations, institutions vying for influence. So maybe you could dive a bit deeper into like how the CFTC and the SEC are battling for control or maybe over what's the definition of a security in the crypto space. Yeah, I, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting question. And I think you, you have to start with the premise when you discuss this, that a, and, and I'm not convinced that a cryptocurrency or a digital asset is a security. I don't think in all cases, ETH is, a, is an interesting one because as we all know, if we're going to do any kind of transaction on the Ethereum network, you use ETH to pay for your transaction, right? You have to, you have to use gas. And so to me, that puts it in a very different place. I certainly can't go to the store and buy a quart of milk, you know, with a security, with a, with a share of some company, right? And, and that's kind of what you're saying is you're creating this other, you know, meaning or you're creating this other value around a, uh, a digital asset that doesn't really seem to be apt at all. The notion of it being some kind of a future, well, it doesn't fit that that at all. Futures, as we we all know, are derivatives, right? What would what would F be a derivative? I mean, it has no time frame. There is no uh, sort of strike price or future value that we're looking at. Uh, so I think that by the CFTC coming in, and as I said before, you know, that's part of the problem with the regulatory regime here in the United States is. There are no fine lines around things. There, there's a lot of gray area, though. And so by the CFTC coming in and starting to talk about these as, as futures or derivatives, I, I mean, the very first question I would, I would ask is derivative of what? What's the base security that this derives from? And I, I think they would have a very difficult time doing that. Now, I, I think that part of the reason they're stepping up is that nobody wants to lose out. Right. I mean, it's, there's a new this new asset class in town. And so everybody wants to uh, everybody wants to weigh in. Everybody wants to uh, maybe expand their kingdom a little bit and uh, and take it in. But before they do that, they really need to understand. And I think the question needs to be asked, you know, for and, and I, Patrick can probably weigh in on this on the on the European side. But in in, in any sort of digital asset, these exist in a virtual realm, right? They don't exist in a geographic realm. So what what responsibility and what purview do any regulators have and, and what laws pertain? So if if all of a sudden they decided, well, we're going to regulate all, all digital assets, all cryptocurrencies, well, what about cryptocurrencies that have no basis in, in the United States? You know, maybe maybe some U.S. citizens own it, maybe they don't. But how, you know, that, this would be very, very different than, than anything else. Regulatory regimes are pretty strict around the, around the world. Um, how, do you, how do you start to do that? And if you, if you get too parochial when they say, okay, we have, you know, we have oversight over this, if it has some sort of presence in a certain country or a certain region, does that drive a, a lot of presence to, to other places where there is not as much regulation? It's very, going to be very, very difficult in a virtual space to regulate these kinds of things. 
I mean, that's perfect kind of bridge to um, our next question, which goes to Patrick. I mean, we had a great interview with Patrick on the European regulation for crypto asset, the Mika, already. So any listeners who has, hasn't had the chance to listen to it, please scroll down your podcast menu and, and, and you can listen to it. For today, I think it's about the difference in Europe and towards what's happening in the U.S., And I would like to ask Patrick for, I mean, it's a little bit unfair, but let's try it, a kind of elevator pitch. How would you summarize the European, the Mika regulation? In a nutshell, Mika is a com comprehensive regulation proposal for all kinds of crypto assets. It was published on September 2020. And its goal is really to create both harmonized and also binding rules for all kinds of crypto asset issuers in the European Union, but also all kinds of crypto asset service providers, uh, such as um, custodians, for example, or exchanges or brokers. And the goal is really to create a real EU single market for crypto asset services, including, for example, a passporting regime for those service provider licenses. Uh, that means that licensed custodians, for example, can offer then crypto custody service throughout the whole EU. And that is basically, yeah, in a nutshell, the content and the goal of the Mika. And, and, and currently the regulatory landscape is maybe more comparable to the, to the US landscape. It is a kind of patchwork There have been EU directives before, especially on AML regarding crypto, but these directives have been implemented very differently in the European Union. Germany, for example, has introduced a very strict and mandatory crypto custody license regime. Other countries such as France and others have more flexible approaches. And again, others have basically no rules at all for crypto asset issuers and crypto asset service providers. So Mika could change all that and create a comprehensive binding and, and harmonized approach for all kinds of services and assets in the crypto asset space. I think Mika differentiates between different kind of crypto assets. One is a more general category. So, so I would say crypto assets in general, which is, I think, the Bitcoin, Ethereum falls into it. Then we have utility tokens, whatever, Filecoin, basic attention token. And there are two other categories, uh, which we might summarize under stable coins, but they are differentiated in the Mika regulation. One is the asset reference token, so asset, asset back reference token, and the other is e-money tokens. Can you elaborate a little bit on these stable coins and the specific requirements, especially for e-money tokens here? Sure. So e-money tokens are basically the kinds of crypto assets that are packed to one single fiat currency compared to, for example, asset-backed, asset-referenced token that are either packed to several fiat currencies or to other kinds of commodities such as gold and others. And those are the two cat categories for stable coins. And basically, Mika was really drafted from the beginning with those kinds of stable coins in mind. Uh, that is also reflected by the sheer size of the stablecoin parts of the whole regulation. I think it's more than one, than, than one third of the whole regulation is on, on stable coins only. And obviously, the European legislators and regulators had private coins, private stable coins such as DM, formerly Libra in mind when they drafted the whole bill. 
And e-money token issuers and asset reference token issuers will be regulated quite harshly. Um, so, for example, e-money token issuers have to get regulated as a e-money institution or as a credit institution. And I think everyone knows how difficult that is in the European Union. There will be some strict capital reserve requirements, some treasury and custody requirements for those assets. There will be obviously governance, liquidity and redemption requirements for those stable coins and so forth. So it will be it will become very, very difficult in the European Union to offer stable coins. For sure. me, the question is, if the European Union classifies stablecoin under Mika, they are definitely not securities because securities or security-like tokens are dealt with in other regulation or regulatory laws, ETC, in the EU. Would this mean for the EU a stablecoin is not a security? Yes, under the current Mika regulation, that is true. But I would say that largely depends also on the specific design and the specific treasury of the stablecoin. So if a stablecoin just uses other fiat currencies as PEG or commodities such as crypto assets or gold, then I would say it's definitely not a security. Obviously, it gets a little bit more complex if a stablecoin purports to other securities such as debt instruments or other financial products that are regulated as securities. I mean, those kind of stablecoin designs, they could also be thought of. And if you look at how Tether is uh, composing its treasury, one has to really uh, look into the details of that and to all those debt and financial product instruments uh, in order to assess its status as security or not. But under the current media regulation, I would say the mo most of the stablecoins currently in the market would not count as securities. Now, as the two of you kind of already mentioned, there's been lots of discussion around Mika potentially being overreaching and shutting down parts of the industry, if not well, the industry as a whole. What kind of are Mika's Achilles heels and what's what are the most critical points? Do you also see some opportunities or is it all... No, definitely not. And maybe let's start with the opportunities. And I would say the biggest ones, I already mentioned them, are really that the EU is trying to build a harmonized and a common single market for crypto assets where there are binding rules for everyone. And I think this is the only way for the EU, but also for EU crypto asset service providers to be competitive with, for example, American or Chinese blockchain and crypto companies. And I would also say on top of that, that the Mika could really bring more institutional players and partnerships into the crypto market. It will create legal certainty that will allow more and more, I would say, larger banks and financial institutions to enter the market. It will create more consumer protection that will hopefully lead to more positive narratives also in, in mainstream media and more trust in, in broader society. So I really think that the Mika regulation could level up the whole crypto asset market in Europe. But obviously, on the contrary, on the other side, there are also big questions or big doubts on, on how far the Mika regulation is reaching into, for example, the technology itself and into services on top of the technology. And I would say the most critical questions are really based on three aspects. The first one, we already tackled it, are stable coins. So how strict will those rules for stablecoins be and who will be still be attracted in the European Union to offer, for example, a euro packed stablecoin, which could 
obviously be very, very helpful for a lot of EU crypto investors. So stablecoins is the first big topic. The second topic is, I would say, decentralized finance and how will all those rules for crypto asset service providers apply to, for example, decentralized financial applications? Will they apply to them or not? I think this is something that has still to be figured out then by the supervisory institutions, especially EBA and ESMA in the European Union. And the third pillar of, of big questions regards the question of technology neutrality and the regulation of utility tokens. So will all kinds of crypto assets be regulated as financial instruments and the MICA? Uh, and obviously that could be a big barrier to also non-financial blockchain applications such as, I don't know, um, mobility or retail vouchers that are based on blockchain. And I think no one wants those kinds of non-financial tokens to be regulated as financial instruments. So I would say these are the big pillars that still have to be discussed in the parliament and in the Council of the European Union. But on a whole, I would say that the outlook is quite positive. And especially the part about over reaching regulation and, for example, retail vouchers being seen as a financial instrument. That reminds me a bit of the infrastructure bill, of course, in the US, um, where maybe every node operator might be seen as a financial institution. But then on the other hand side, it seems like there are very different approaches, uh, well, progressing in the European Commission and in the US Senate. In general, do you think there's more differences or more commonalities in the regulatory approach between the EU and the US? Yeah, I would say there are plenty of uh, differences and commonalities, and I'm uh, really looking forward also to, to Jimmy's opinion and, and, and to discussing that later. I would say in a nutshell, uh, the biggest commonality is definitely the fact that both jurisdictions are really now looking closely into the market. They realize that this uh, two plus trillion dollar industry is not a niche and nerdy industry anymore, but it really has become a relevant and driving force for the whole financial industry and, and also beyond. And I think both jurisdictions have definitely realized that they have to come up with regulatory frameworks and guidance. But then obviously, they differ a lot when it comes to their approaches. In the EU, for example, and I already touched on that, the goal is really to come up with a comprehensive and all-encompassing regulatory framework that covers basically, if I want to exaggerate a little bit, that covers basically all kinds of possible crypto and blockchain use cases that have been seen in the past that we are currently dealing with and that could also be figured out in the future. So it's really one big regulation to rule them all, basically. And in the US, in my opinion, there's more a kind of wait and see approach, maybe a little bit a more pragmatic approach. Regulators, and Jimmy already mentioned that there are various different regulators, look at more closely and more specifically at where problems might arise and where legal certainty is needed. And then they come up with more maybe short-term solutions from time to time. I would say that maybe don't regulate the whole market, but might provide legal certainty, at least for some players. And as an example, I would use, for example, the, the OCC, the Office of the Control of the Currency, that is one of the major regulators in the US, that last year alone in 2020 published three different inter interpretative letters that basically allowed banks 
to provide a reserve for stable coins. It allowed banks to custody, to provide custody for crypto assets and also to take part as node operators in, in, in stablecoin networks. And that ju just shows how different the approach is. It's more, I would say, hands-on, more pragmatic. Um, we see where problems arise and react. But obviously, on the negative side, it, 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 there's more gray areas and more aspects that, don't have to, that, that, that weren't touched already by U.S. regulations. And then there are obviously other differences when it comes to crypto regulation, the U.S., The issue of the global reserve currency, the dollar, that obviously has influences on stablecoin regulations. We can maybe dive deeper into that later and also from an industry perspective. And that's primarily interesting also to me as a spokesperson for Bitcoin Industry Association. Obviously, the crypto industry in the United States is much more mature with huge publicly trading traded companies such as Coinbase that have a very strong voice and a very strong lobbying power when it comes to regulation. I would say in the EU, the crypto industry is still tiny compared to that. And regulation is still more driven by established financial companies. But I'm happy to discuss all of that in, in, in greater detail later. Jimmy, do you see this the same way as Patrick sees this, or do you want to add something? So I do see, I mean, there are a lot of interesting things, I think, that, that Patrick brought up. You know, I, and I think his last comment was probably one of the most pertinent, and that's around regulation. Why is this such a, a big topic? Why is this such so heated? Uh, I mean, it is, it's certainly it's a large, large amount, $2 trillion. So that's, that's one reason, but that's globally. And globally, while it's concentrated in a few areas, it's still not, maybe not as big as, as all of this activity would call for. And, and so I asked myself, you know, why? Why is this occurring? And I would say that most regulation, Patrick, I don't know if you'll agree with me or not, is strictly to protect the entrenched legacy industry, the financial players that are trying to protect their, their market. I do not believe that most regulation has anything to do with protecting consumers. I think it just puts up walls so that the barrier to entry is quite high. And we see this in all kinds of industries. We see it across, you know, financial services, but we certainly see it in, in other industries too. The idea of regulation protecting the consumer, I think, is pretty far down the list of things that regulation is, uh, is protecting. So, and so I, I do come at it from, from a little bit that perspective of that protectionist kind of uh, legislation. And I think you're seeing it come from the EU, you're seeing it come from the United States, two places where the more entrenched financial services industry is just being barraged by fintech in general, right? I mean, in the United States for the last three years, banks haven't made the majority of mortgages here. And that was that was a mainstay of banks, you know, making mortgages in the US. And and now they make less than half of the mortgages in, in, in the country. So fintechs have, have taken over that spot, as well as a lot of other spots. So you have the fastest growing brokerage firm here in all times is Robinhood, right? A fintech company. Um, So I think the, the, the legacy firms see the writing on the wall. They see people going to, into the crypto space, but they also see people going into the DeFi space. And remember, that's the only way to get into the DeFi space is through, is through crypto, right? And so I, I think that they are, they are very, very wary of losing more market share, more investors to uh, a space that they don't control. They, they can't put guardrails up over And so I think a lot of the regulation really is around things like that. It doesn't have anything to do with investor protection in the vast majority of cases. That may be just because I'm 
I spent so many years in finance and I'm a little bit jaded, but I really do think that that that's the case because I don't see anything being legislated right now around investor protection. What I see is uh, a lot of uh, things being used to kind of rein in different sorts of assets that clearly people have an interest in, in owning. And so instead of looking at why do people want to own these, why are people flocking to decentralized finance? What they're saying is we need to put up guardrails, but I, I have, I've yet to hear why they need to put up, but need to put up guardrails. People do this by choice. They, you know, decide to buy into any sort of decentralized finance applications or investments by choice. Then nobody's forced to do this. It's not like it's a 401k or uh, something like that, where you are forced to buy into a certain number of certain limited pool of assets. So I think the reasoning behind it, I've yet to hear one regulator come up with, why are people doing this? Why are people flocking to these kinds of investments? And that would, that would seem to be a, a better place to come from as far as this goes. You don't even see very much being done as far as research or anything like that around uh, a lot of the, the digital assets that are out there. There There's very little in the academic realm and even less, I mean, consulting firms and things like that, but they just want your business. There's not a lot coming from kind of the traditional sources. Um, so I, I think that more, more is, is slowly being done in that space. And I'm, I'm gonna give you guys an exclusive here. We haven't publicly really announced this yet. But Duke is actually going to be uh, starting a digital asset research and engineering collab. It was uh, funded very recently. And so the public announcement will be probably uh, later this week or even next week. But you guys are getting an, an exclusive on that. So we are diving all the way in to start looking at digital assets in a, from a research and engineering perspective uh, very soon. But I think that's, that's something that's very necessary, that's very needed at this point. That question of why. Why are people... Why are people flocking to these? Um, you're seeing more and more fintech companies and non-traditional companies coming into these kinds of spaces, the payment space and things like that. Certainly, that's a place that digital assets have a, a big area to play in. But you're seeing very traditional companies uh, like Apple, you know, Apple Pay coming out and announcing they're going to do the, the buy now, pay later type of mode. Well, they have a half a billion customers on Apple Pay. That's a lot of people that are willing to, uh, to do that kind of thing. And so what I'm saying is instead of regulators just saying, well, this is the way we've always done it, which seems to be the tact that's being taken by the EU and the US, why don't we take a different tact and why do people, why are people gravitating towards this and take that tact instead of we need to protect the, the legacy financial services firms. Should I get you off my soapbox now? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no, all good. Uh, thank you for this pre-announcement. That's yeah. uh, great. So we'll have to hurry up in uh, post-producing our podcast here. Uh, Jimmy, do you think this kind of uh, moat building, this kind of building a wall or protecting the traditional financial industry is also behind all this discussion in the infrastructure with regards to the new Biden infrastructure bill? Somehow, there's a lot of discussion around the definition of a broker, right? Um, and uh, I think amendments went back and forth here. Unfortunately, the whole thing didn't come to, to a happy end. Can you give us some insights why it's this broker definition is so critical? Yeah. And what would be the impact if it stays as is and goes, goes through the Congress? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge deal. This is a, a much bigger deal. And it's not like a broker, like a stockbroker. In this particular frame, it's a little bit different than that. 
But basically what they're saying is anybody who's responsible for providing any kind of service that transfers digital assets on behalf of someone else, they're now a broker. So any blockchain basically is, is a broker, right? Any miner or anything like that, that is facilitating the transfer of any kind of asset on behalf of someone else is a broker now. So they're going to have to go through and, and meet a lot of requirements, uh, reporting requirements, tax collection, all those kinds of things that would be almost impossible, right? And, and, and it goes back to my question before, under what regulatory regime, under what you know, regional responsibility? If you're outside of the United States, do you still have to do that? I mean, remember, all these operate in a virtual space. And, and to me, that's the thing that people are, they're still thinking that people are going down to their corner bank and, and it doesn't work that way. Do I think this was brought on by the, the financial services industry? Absolutely. But it was also a, uh, a quick way to, to, they think, to raise taxes, right? Because this was, all this is predicated on taxing and, and being able to, uh, to, to tax these transactions. And so they thought, well, this $2 trillion industry, we can tax that. And we can pay for some of the, the stuff that is in the, uh, the infrastructure bill. But I think it, this whole idea around the broker definition and things like that, that's not typically something that legislators would come up with. I'm, I'm reasonably sure that, that there, there was help came from industry in writing something like that. And there were several amendments. Uh, there were two amendments that were proposed to uh, kind of take this out. And, uh, and, and neither one of them, those weren't successful. So it, it did pass, although it's, it's terribly written. It's overly broad. It's not terribly specific. And so it leaves a lot of gray area, a lot of area for interpretation. So we'll have to see what actually happens with this. But in the U.S., you know, these kinds of things can take forever. Uh, there are still, I think, Dodd-Frank proposals. So this is what over a decade old that still haven't been enacted. So things take a long time in the United States because they do go through Congress. And let's face it, you know, most people don't understand digital assets terribly well. I think Congress doesn't have a, a corner on that. And so I think just the fact that there are very few experts out there, there are very few people that can lend an opinion makes it extremely difficult to, to do this kinds of thing. But, but, but will this kind of change when it goes to the Congress or it's rather a question of smart enforcement? I somehow read or saw on Twitter some, I don't know, anonymous guy or so from the Treasury said, okay, uh, we'll do not interpret this broker definition so broadly. So calm down, guys. How do you see this going on? Or is this too difficult to, to really forecast? I, I, think it's, I think it's a gamble. That's what it comes down to. We, we have no idea of the lobbying that's going to take place and how Congress interprets any of these things. The, the whole idea around what a broker is, what a digital asset is, what the, the covered assets would be. I mean, all those kinds of things, we have no idea. And remember, they're going to be going backwards. So they're going to be saying, oh, well, these are covered securities and these securities maybe have been around for five years. So all this is going to be going backwards too. Will this cause for certain stru structural changes in the way that we think about digital assets and, and things like that? I don't know how this law will be or this, this rule will be put into place, but, but there's, a, there's a lot of room for interpretation here. Now, of course, the battle is far from over. Uh, as you mentioned, these things take a very long time also, of course, in the EU to come into effect. But what other moves do you think we still have to deal with and we still have to expect? So what's the financial services industry still going to throw away um, besides these first attempts at lobbying nonsensical and beyond shady 
regulation into some bills. What are like the other tricks of the trade where, of course, I don't want to be the conspiracy theorist, but there's uh, much talk about the silver price that's been manipulated for decades already and uh, not really allowed to move freely. Should we expect something similar where oligopoly of multiple banks kind of owns the price of Bitcoin maybe in the future? Or what's the other more dystopic? Um, yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, we've seen kind of time and time again, banks being fined for um, manipulation of different kinds of benchmarks. I mean, LIBOR comes to mind right away, right? But but we see that constantly over different types of assets. Um the banks and uh, brokerage firms manipulating the the price of different types of assets. I mean, if you look for commodities in particular, Forex and and things, you see that constantly banks still being fined for for those kinds of things. The thing that kind of drives me crazy is you see like these giant fines levied on banks, hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars. But how much of that actually makes its way back to the investors who were potentially harmed? Very, very, very little in the big scheme of things, if anything. And so, I mean, I, I really don't think that those two are going to have the, the desired effect. I mean, the one thing I think that there are some banks that are posturing, right? We have seen some banks that have kind of jumped on the man wagon a little bit and said, well, yeah, I mean, we don't want any of this stuff happening, but if it does, then we're good. We're ready to, to jump in, in particular in the custodial services that, that banks have been doing for forever. I could see banks in the, the not too distant future decide that, okay, well, these are these are real things. These are real assets. Get into custodial services. I, I think that's a very natural place for them to play in. And that could be either U.S. banks or European banks or, or Asian banks. Doesn't doesn't really matter. But I could see that being a, an easy area for banks to kind of enter into in the not too distant future should some of these things go forward. Patrick, the, the crypto markets seem to be much more sensitive to tweets of Elon Musk than to all the discussions we had here the last, whatever, 40 minutes or any fundamental regulatory announcement, which I always find very, very surprising. I mean, if we exclude the ban of miners in China here, what do you think will be the short to long-term impact of these regulatory moves on DeFi. I mean, they are restrictive from the uh, EU side. And I don't think, I don't see too much light at the end of the tunnel in the US as well. How do you see the, the future of DeFi? I mean, first of all, to come back to the market reactions uh, to the recent regulatory discussions in the USA, what I personally was the most fascinated Uh, by was really the lobbying power and the capacity by the American crypto industry to 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 organize itself and and to drive that crypto discussion within an infrastructure bill that is basically the biggest bipartisan political project uh, probably during the whole Biden administration and the whole process is basically influenced by a nascent uh, crypto industry that before that point has not had too many political experience and, and too, too many lobbying experience. So I think maybe one reason why the market uh, didn't react as we expected is because of the positive signaling of just the astounding capacity by the American crypto industry to organize itself, to lobby, and also to make their voices heard. So th th that's one point. I think the second point may be that Just the definition of broker was so nonsensical in the, in the first draft and also how it was adopted in the end by the Senate 
that I think no one really expects the supervisory authorities basically interpret, I don't know, note operators as, as brokers. So in that sense, I don't think the market really expects the definition to be applied so broadly as maybe is feared by the industry. But to come back to the original question, how will regulation play out for DeFi? I think we will see more and more attempts by European, by American, but also by international regulators to come up with possible regulatory solutions for DeFi. I think there is no quick fix. There is no quick solution um, for that since it's the first time probably for those regulatory bodies that they have to shift away from their traditional way of regulating, which is to uh, come up with requirements for central counterparts and for central intermediaries when it comes to DeFi, obviously, they have to come up with new solutions. And that's true for the whole crypto industry, but even more true, I would say, for DeFi, that the market is totally global. Even the DeFi teams working on DeFi applications, they are all distributed around the globe. And I think no forward-looking jurisdiction wants to basically ban that innovation from its own territory. So I think all regulators are interested in, in, in really pushing that industry at home. And, and then we will see how, for example, tax rules, how AML rules, I, I would say those two are probably in the short to midterm, the most important aspects, how those two will be managed in the DeFi space. And I think both sides, the regulator on one side and, and the crypto industry on the other side, have to come up with innovative solutions. And that could be, for example, I don't know, embedded automated AML compliance that is done by crypto AML service providers and that are embedded directly in smart contracts, for example, and, 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 and other points that have to be figured out. Simon, although you are the moderator, maybe you can switch roles for just, uh, for just a second. How do you see the impact on DeFi by all these regulatory moves? Well, what I've been seeing like from the industry is that um, anyone who can afford it moves away from a centralized entity as much as possible. Like Shapeshift, for example, Aave, um, pretty much everyone's trying to become as decentralized as possible and shift decision-making towards a DAO structure. So in reality, it's just, as I always say, the industry is moving so fast that regulation doesn't have any chance of keeping up. So it doesn't really matter at this point what regulators do. The best thing they could do is just foster things and make sure that they stay within their jurisdictions so that they can benefit from it. But whether the Europeans are going to decide, hey, Mikar, all of you DeFi decentralized exchanges, for example, you shouldn't be allowed to operate or you need to KYC everyone and report everything. It doesn't matter because there will be no one left to regulate, like as in no um, natural person or also no uh, legal person. So in reality, where the only point in this chain where you can still regulate the centralized entities, of course, and like fiat on and offboarding. So regulating DeFi is really questionable because I don't think it will work. Let's say um, things pass by like 2023 or something, and then enforcement comes in 2024, or 2025. I think what we've learned since 2017, since the ICO boom is that Pretty much no one will care anymore because the regulation is so old and so unfitting because within two or three years, the entire world of crypto changes. And that's the beauty of kind of an open source ecosystem 
where everyone can participate and things are constantly under scrutiny and under review, that it's just so much more efficient uh, than the traditional world. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of a product that will be dominant and that will um, win out in the long term, that it's at least 10 times better than the uh, legacy system. And that's what we're seeing. And I think we need a fundamental change in our approach to regulation, kind of as Patrick alluded to already, that this is not a topic that you can regulate the same way as you regulated um, the exchange down the road where you walk in with a bunch of cash and they give you a bunch of other colored paper um, from another country. It just doesn't work like that. This is an open source ecosystem and money and value is for the first time fully digital and fully open source. So it takes a different approach and I'm not this is, again, my personal opinion and also not the opinion of any company I'm affiliated with or anything. But I do not think our current political mm, consensus mechanisms are able to deal with this well enough because the average age, and this is, of course, now a bit um, snarky, but the average age of the regulator is quite high and the average interest in technological topics is still, unfortunately, very low, in my opinion. Okay, Jimmy, how do you think the DeFi industry itself will react? I think of, for example, AVE. Uh, they are going to launch AVE Pro, which is uh, DeFi for institutional uh, investors now. Do you think, because these guys are fast moving, definitely moving much faster than any government or regulator uh, is going to move. Do you think they will adapt soon? And then we have a big inflow, even much bigger than uh, would follow the, the classical retail DeFi, uh, DeFi path. So a big inflow of institutional investors coming soon could be, I, I mean, a bright outlook. Yeah. yeah, I think we already have. I think to think that there aren't institutional investors that are involved in particular in hedge funds and things like that, I think would be naive. In fact, I have I have no doubt um, that they're already playing. They may not be playing in a big way, but I think they're already playing. You know, something that, that Simon said, I, I agree with 100% that we're going to more autonomous structures and think who, who does autonomous structures better than high-frequency traders, right? I mean, that's really what high-frequency trading is all about. So the fact that you have automated market making, that's really hard to do with one guy in his garage. But it's not if you have the resources of a, of a big company behind you. So I think in, in some sense, some of the maybe less regulated hedge fund type entities are, one, they're already playing in the space. But I think we will see more of that kind of thing, certainly. I know products are being designed now that are going to be attractive to institutional investors as well as to, to retail investors. But the one thing I want to make sure that people understand is that, again, it goes that back to the question of why. Why are people doing this? Well, they're doing this to get access to things they can't get otherwise. You know, for institutional investors, it's just a matter of they can get access to, to these also, but they already have access. Across the, the United States, across Europe, the number of assets that a individual, you know, a retail investor can invest in has decreased every year. If you look at you know, the actual asset, not the derivatives on the asset, you know, if you look at, the, for instance, in the United States, the number of listed equities, those have declined by almost 50% in the last eight, nine years. Not there's any less investment being done is just being done privately, right? And as a retail investor, you don't get access to private equity funds and those kinds of things. They're certainly turning out all kinds of derivatives, ETFs on these things. There's like a 40 or 50,000 probably ETFs out there. 
But that's just the same basically pool of securities that people are slicing and dicing 100 different ways and selling out to, to retail investors. But why are retail investors doing this? They're doing this to get exposure to things they can't get otherwise. You know, this is a natural evolution. If you take away everything that I can invest in, well, I'll figure out another way to invest in it. And that's what's happening with, with DeFi. The fact that you have institutions that are starting to, to get into it, I, I think that's, again, a natural progression. I, I, I love the idea of the DAOs. Hopefully we do see more of those proliferate. But I think in, in a lot of cases, those are going to be, at the end of the day, controlled by those entities that have maybe not unlimited resources, but uh, maybe unlimited checkbooks. Normally, we end each of our Untitled Investment Talk with a kind of golden question. I have one golden question for both of you, Jimmy and Patrick, and uh, might ask you for a kind of short answer. We talked about private stablecoin, and there are some issues, might be securities in, uh, in the US. So we have, let's say, high barriers to introducing new private stablecoins in the EU. So will CBDCs? replace private stablecoins in your opinion patrick i i don't really think so i mean i think we will definitely see cbdc's in a couple of years but i don't think they will necessarily used for the same use cases our stablecoins are used currently for so for example stablecoins currently are primarily used for example for cross-border payments remittances for example they are used for crypto trading especially usdt and usdc They are used for all kinds of uh, decentralized financial services in the DeFi space, for lending, for borrowing. And I'm, I, I don't really think that central bank digital currencies, both from a technical and from a legal perspective, will be in competition with stablecoins on that front. So I would say no. Jimmy? I agree with Patrick 100%. I don't think they will replace stablecoins. I think they are a, a good means if used correctly to enforce certain financial policies, but I don't think that they will replace stablecoins for the reasons that Patrick gave. The, the other thing about these CBDCs is we don't even have a good idea of kind of the trajectory that they will be rolled out on. I can see some places, China already has, has one rolled out and they're testing it in quite a few places. And from what I understand it, It is, it, it is achieving many of the policy goals that it was set out for. Other countries, it's, you know, it's going to be a much more difficult thing to do. So for, for a myriad of reasons, I don't see those replacing stablecoins. Great. A big thank you to both of you, Jimmy and Patrick, for sharing your expertise and uh, the open discussion here. It was really a true pleasure having both of you here on the show. And also... A uh, big thanks to my charming and knowledgeable co-host, Simon. And to foremost, thanks to all our listeners for their patience to follow this extended talk, which I, by the way, like very much. Maybe we should do this on a regular basis. So to all our listeners, hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned, stay loyal to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. All signal, no noise. Mm -hmm.